Yossi Kleinalevi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, and Like Dreamers, which won the Jewish Book Council's Book of the Year. You can see Yossi's op-eds in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and other leading newspapers. I sat down with Yossi in his office at the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem for the first part of a four-part series of conversations with Yossi over the next year and a half or so. In this episode, we spoke about American Jews and their relationship with the State of Israel. Amongst the topics we discussed were who exactly is the American Jewish community, the rift between that community and the State of Israel, what role Israel should play in the lives of American Jews, how much influence American Jews should have on the State of Israel, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figure It Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. When we Israelis talk about American Jews, we talk about American Jews. We say we're going to lose the American Jewish community. The American Jewish community demands of Israel, whatever. Who are we talking about? Who are these American Jews? Well, first of all, it's great to be with you again, Barak. <laughs> Always a pleasure. And uh, I imagine that we'll find some points of agreement and some points of disagreement, especially on this subject. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. What we're talking about, before we get into the sociology, the political and religious breakdowns, we're talking about roughly half of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Now, we number on a good day about 14 million Jews in the world. Mm -hmm. Between the state of Israel, which thank God is now the world's largest Jewish community, and American Jewry, which is a close second between the two of us, we're talking about roughly 90% of the world's Jews. Mm -hmm. So when we speak about the diaspora, more and more, what we're really speaking about is North American Jewry with a few important outposts out there. The Australian Jewish community is beautiful. South Africa is much diminished. They're down now to about 40,000, but just a wonderful community. Latin America, these are, these are warm Jewish communities that are actually much more closely aligned with Israel, politically, certainly, but also ideologically, emotionally, than much of American Jewry, partly because they're more vulnerable communities. Mm -hmm. American Jewry is, is depending which statistics you believe, it's anywhere from, from five and a half to seven and a half million. So when we talk about American Jewry, it's not another diaspora. It's half the Jewish people. And that has to obligate us to really take this seriously, to take them seriously, and to take the issues that they're, that they're dealing with seriously. It's a very diverse community. We were talking before, I was going over the, the latest Pew research. And what surprised me, you know, I grew up in the reform movement. And I also interviewed Eric Yoffe, the former uh, head of the reform movement, in one of the previous podcast episodes. And he was talking about how the reform movement is the strongest and we represent American Jews. And it turns out that according to the latest Pew study, 14% of American Jews belong to reform congregations. 38% mm -hmm. are involved in a Chabad shul in some way or another. 
And you just had to wait long enough, Barack, and your vindication <laughs> would come. You see, you were a pioneer in making that switch oh from reform God. to Chabad. My mother's going to kill me for you saying this. <laughs> well, that was really what I saw when I was 17. And I went to a Chabad shul, which I always avoided. And I was like, what's going on here? When you were 17. When I was 17. And remind me, where did you grow up? In North Miami Beach. There are a few Jews there. Yeah, it was a very strong Jewish community, a lot of Holocaust survivors, which is why we'll have a future Holocaust episode. Even though no one in my direct family was in the Holocaust, I carry a Holocaust trauma growing up on Miami Beach well, yeah. with all the survivors. That's a separate thing. What I want to say about the Reform Movement is that it turns out Judaism can survive without the Beit HaMikdash, can survive without sacrifices, but it can't survive without Halacha. And the reform movement... Are you asking me or are you stating I'm saying this? that you said to me, well, what do you think about this? So I'm saying my conclusion from my personal experience in the reform movement and seeing these numbers from the Pew study is that the reform movement is not a success, but it's not their fault. They have tried everything possible, and I think they did a great job with what they had. They just didn't have successful cards. You have to have a framework of Judaism in order to survive. And they don't. I find that assessment very moving, very generous. Um, you know, I don't think we've seen the last word here on the liberal denominations. Mm -hmm. Now, the denominations are declining. Conservative Judaism is in almost a free fall. The registration for Jewish Theological Seminary is so low this year that you really wonder how can they keep, how can they keep it going? So, on the one hand, I'm very worried for the future of liberal Judaism because it's very nice that 34% go to Chabad synagogues, but they're not going to become Chabadniks. No. There are very few American Jews who are going to follow in your footsteps. Right. And you, you know, you're, you're, you're a person who goes all the way when you, you fully commit, you put your all in it. That's not the dynamic of American Judaism. American Judaism is a give and take with the general society. That's both its strength and its weakness. And we've never had a situation like this in Jewish history of a diaspora, which for all of the anti-Semitism that's coming to the surface now, is still the most beloved minority in America. And the polls consistently show that. And I mean that in, in two senses, uh, the most beloved minority and also the minority that non-Jews love to fall in love with and marry. So. To appreciate liberal Judaism is simply to acknowledge that liberal Judaism is responding to the circumstances of America. Now, the wider question is, can Judaism, the Jewish people, thrive in those conditions? And if we can't, if the answer is that the only way the Jewish people can maintain its identity is if we live under siege, whether it's here or we self-ghettoize, which is how I grew up. You and I grew up in very right. different circumstances. Really like this, complete <laughs> different trajectories. You know, I, so it's interesting. You know, it's an interesting conversation between us because I grew up in, in Borough Park where the, there was the, the notion of, of non-Orthodox Judaism was, was horrifying. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet my father made a point when I was, when I was young of taking me every so often, to the lone conservative synagogue that existed in Borough Park. And he went because he loved the chazam, the, the cantor. It was uh, David Kosovitsky of the famous Kosovitsky 
Cantor, Cantorial dynasty. And what was so interesting was my father would, you know, we would sit in the back so he wouldn't be involved in mixed seating. But I don't think he really cared about that. I think he felt a responsibility to me that he didn't want me to get crossed mixed messages. I was in yeshiva. And so what are we doing here? And on the other hand, he really wanted me, and this I, I realized only much later, he wanted me to be exposed to the full range of the Jewish people, the Jewish experience. So we would go. We had three shuls that we davened among. Our base was a shtibel, a, a one-room Hasidic synagogue that was close to Satmar Hasidus. And my father went there because that's where the his friends from his hometown, Davin, prayed. And then we would go to Temple Bethel, which was Borough Park's major modern Orthodox synagogue. And then we'd go to the conservative synagogue. And so I grew up with this sense, and again, I didn't realize it until, until I was much older, of ease going in and out. I'm comfortable. I can Davin today with Satmar Hasidim, and I can Davin with Reformed Jews. It's all the same to me, actually. Yeah, well, that's unique. You don't really have that today in American Jews. You have this 40% of non-Jews of no religion, which it seems to me— Is it 40%? It's 40% of the total count. And for the most part, they're not interested in their kids being Jewish. They're interested in them having the same political affiliation. I think that might be a little too harsh. Uh, That was a direct quote from the Pew study. Ah, okay. Yeah, that it said across all ages— they weren't worried about their children, grandchildren being Jewish. They were concerned about having the same. So you just pulled a fast one on me. Bro. Did I? <laughs> what did I do? But I have to tell you, there's something else in the Pew report that I've been, I've also been, been reading it. Both, both of them from 2013 and I think it was 2020. Yeah. And it seems to be 2021 also. Yeah. And, um, I think it was from the most recent report. There's an astonishing statistic, which is that 94% of American Jews say they're proud to be Jewish. Now, leave for a moment what they're proud of. Leave that out for a well, moment. We're going to talk about because that. Because we, we should unpack yeah. it. But how old are you? I'm 51. All right. So I'm 69. So I'm 18 so years younger. So that's more or less a generation. Yeah. So It's a Haredi generation. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So uh, when, when I was growing up in, uh, in the 1960s and 70s, there were, so far as I know, nobody was doing a Pew-style poll of American Jewry. But if, if they had, and they'd ask the question, are you proud to be Jewish? My guess is the numbers would have been shockingly low. Mm-hmm. And maybe there would have been an uptick after the Six-Day War. But to have a statistic like that, 94% say they're proud to be Jewish, means that something fundamental shifted in the last few generations. My guess is, my gut tells me, that what's happened is that for my generation of American Jews, there was still the struggle to assimilate. And American Jews have now assimilated. Right, they succeeded. They succeeded. And so, Jewishness isn't a threat anymore. And at the same time, Jewishness is celebrated by much of American society. And now, it's changing. It's changing on campuses. It's changing in all kinds of ways. But with the positive changes that we saw in the last two generations were that American society basically embraced the Jews. And so, Jews are now proud to be Jewish, and I celebrate that. 
Now, there are other aspects of the Pew poll that really worry me. The very low statistics about young Jews who identify with Jewish peoplehood or who regard, God forbid, the destruction of Israel as a personal tragedy. It's a mixed bag. The poll results. It's a mixed bag. There is a basis to work on. Now, the fact that Chabad rabbis can go to a campus and set up a Chabad house and hundreds of kids will come is a reflection of the ease with which the overwhelming majority of American Jews today regard their Jewishness. Now, it's shallow, much of that identity, but is it an improvement, a, a big improvement over my generation? I think so. There's no Philip Roth today. What do you mean by saying that? That he is trying to be an, an American? No, no. That he's publicly embarrassed about his Jewishness and he's humiliating, he delights in humiliating the American Jewish community. Uh -huh. That seems to be over. And I look at the, you know, the, the, the young Jewish writers in America, they write with a great deal of affection about Jewish families, Jewishness. Now, again, it's thin. Much of it is thin, not all of it. Not all of liberal Judaism is thin. And it's important to make that point. And I see it here at the Hartman Institute. Every summer, we have hundreds of liberal rabbis coming from America who are hungry for learning and take back the Torah from here to their communities. And I love these rabbis, Barak. I have to tell they you. I love you. I see it in the talks that are online. But I, I, I have to tell you, though, it's really, I'm so moved by their dedication. These people lose sleep over these statistics. Yeah, that's why I said it's not their fault. I, I think it's not their fault. It's not from lack of passion or lack of effort. I really believe that Judaism can't be passed down from generation to generation without halacha. What, or, do, what do you mean by halacha? Shuchan Aruch. Well, there we have a disagreement. Or living in the state of Israel. Right. The rift between American Jews and the state of Israel has been going on since the beginning Wait, of the we, state. Did we finish the, the quality of American Judaism? We could talk about it all hour. <laughs> you have a call. Okay. <laughs> I would sit here for four hours with you if you would let me. <laughs> this is all the time I have. I got to take advantage of it. Of course, I'm going to edit all this, this stuff out. <laughs> the riff between American I Jews. I think this is charming. <laughs> it's charming. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see when I, listen, all of it out. when I listen to it again. Okay. <laughs> I maybe I won't take all of it out. The rift is started already in 1950 with the. Ben-Gurion Blaustein Agreement, which basically said, don't ask us to make Aliyah, ask American Jews to make Aliyah, and we'll send you money and support you, and we won't bother you. 1960, Eichmann's captured, and American Jews say, what gives you the right to represent the Jewish people? Those were a few voices. There was the head of the American Jewish Committee. That was, that was significant. But uh, that I don't believe that that represented the mainstream of American Jewry at all. And as far as the Blaustein-Ben-Gurion rift, it ended in a pragmatic agreement, which and and whose point, whose main points you 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 cited. And when we talk about a rift, I think we need to to be much more specific. A rift is I don't care about you, or I am appalled by everything that you do and and stand for. That's what we're facing in part of the American Jewish community today. That's a rift. Looking back on the history of the American-Jewish-Israeli relationship, my reading is not a rift. There, there were ideological differences, but the outpouring of 
support and admiration and pride grew over the years. It is interesting how it took, it took a while for that to seep into the American Jewish community. And I remember the moment when it really turned. And that was 1967. And it turned. I was going to say 1967. Barack overnight, overnight. American Jewry suddenly got it. It's like they'd been almost sleepwalking. Israel, and, and don't forget as well that Israel, it was this embattled little country full of refugees. Yeah, we have to support them. Third world country. Yeah. And nobody traveled there. I, I went with my father right after the Six Day War. And I was the first in my class to go. All my friends went to the airport to see me off. Amazing. And they all were there when I came back to greet me at the airport. So, you know, we're talking about a totally different mindset, a different era. And it's, it's not totally fair to judge. And American Jews, this was right after World War II. And I'm, and I'm using World War II and not the Holocaust deliberately because World War II was the moment when American Jews came of age in their relationship to the army. They, a whole generation of American GIs came back from the front and felt Americanized. Right. And, yeah. and, and so the 50s and 60s were really, they were focused on becoming fully American. And the Six Day War shakes them. It's a kind of this shock, shock treatment where they become Zionized. Got it. And, so I, 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 I don't, I don't accept that reading. And, okay. and now I'm very, I have a very harsh reading on the American Jewish community during the Shoah. But that's in the Holocaust episode. We'll, <laughs> I don't we'll want to get into it. that now. We'll save it. Okay. We'll save. I'll make sure to ask that as a question. Did you conclude what you were saying before? So is there a rift or is there not a rift between American Jews today, and the Israel? There's, today there's a growing rift. And what worries me most of all is that Jewish anti-Zionism as an organized force is back. Now, it always existed. Uh, it was in Satmar and the Torah Karta, but, but in the mainstream Jewish community, Jewish anti-Zionism was, was finished. The Holocaust and the state of Israel seemed to definitively defeat anti-Zionism. Now, before the Shoah, anti-Zionism was a normative Jewish position, whether it was in the Haredi world, whether it was in in the Bund, the, the Yiddish socialist Bund. So we're going, reform, to, the, we're going reform, to this question. Now, reform Judaism was, was, was heavily anti-Zionist. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so the great victory of Zionism happens after the Shoah. But now organized forms of anti-Zionism are back. Jewish Voice for Peace, even uh, if not now, which pretended not to be anti-Zionist, but seems to me really to be that. There's a quote from you. There are no longer books published with the titles Jews Fight Back. If anything, the critique is that we've learned to fight too well. Jews are no longer criticized as cowards, but now we're aggressors. To have moved from the world symbol of cowardice to the world symbol of aggression in two generations is one of the greatest accomplishments in Jewish history. It's a great quote, you see. I'll tell you, if it was short enough to put on a t-shirt, I'd be wearing it right now. So yeah, what is yeah. it? I thought that organized anti-Zionism had disappeared. Exactly when did what you I say said. that? In your talk recently, the one over the summer, you said the Bund and the American Council for Judaism and the anti-Zionist wing of the reform movement, I thought these things had disappeared. So what does it say about American Jews that anti-Zionism in an organized way is back? Jewish anti-Zionism exists 
as a as a non satmornatory kind of force, really only in in the American Jewish part of the diaspora. So the question is, what is it about the American diaspora specifically that lends itself to a, a resurgence of of anti Zionism? I think partly it's the fact that American Jews really feel at home, and in other parts of the diaspora, Jews are nervous, permanently nervous. And they know that Israel is is their get out of jail free card. Yeah. So uh, American Jews really internalize the idea that Israel is a refuge for other Jews, and I think that that's true. Mm. I think it's true even now, even with with an undeniable change in the rise of anti-Semitism. American Jews are still are really the first diaspora that's fully at home. Mm -hmm. So. I think that there's a certain laziness that American Jewish anti-Zionists apply to Israel because it's from a place of uh, of comfort and security. And so when I hear certain people speak about certain American Jewish anti-Zionists speak about, well, you know, you don't need a major Jewish majority anymore. And you can um, you can have a binational state, or even if it comes to it, live under. Majority Palestinian rules. You know, you'll have right of return for Palestinians, and there'll be Palestinian majority here. What I hear is, first of all, profound laziness. I don't know if if, if that goes together, but there is. It seems to me this is an example of that. And more than that, a I'm okay, Jack, as they used to say in in the World War II generation in America. I'm okay, Jack, and uh, you'll be okay. To, you know, you'll manage. And that sense of 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 recklessness with Jewish lives. That's that's stunning to me. What do you think? What what do you think will happen here if if we don't have an army? If we don't have a a Jewish majority? If we don't have a government? What's going to happen here? And so there's something in the American Jewish experience that the distance from Jews with problems, the geographical distance, that can create a kind of a self-referential disregard for the real world. So that's part of what's happened. So we have Israeli politicians, and I don't know what you would call them, representatives of the American Jewish community, which I don't really know what that means, who are saying, and Natan Sharansky is the leader in this, saying that we need a world Jewish Congress so that American Jews will have influence in the Knesset. People have been saying there should be a permanent seat in the, in the Knesset for an American Jewish representative. So look, I, 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 I don't yeah. understand that, because as an Israeli, I, and that's one of the questions I have for you, how you define yourself, maybe I'll ask that next. I feel like that's really chutzpah. You know, you know what it is to live here and, and see buses being blown up and people stabbing people on the street, and when I see a tractor... I go far away from the tractor because I never know if the tractor might come after me. So look, yeah, I also have tractor trouble. <laughs> and you're gonna, <laughs> and you're gonna give, you're gonna tell me that you need representation over here. Come and make aliyah. All right, so, and be with us. So look, the phenomenon. First of all, the phenomenon that I was describing earlier really is a small minority of the Jewish community. It's vocal. They're, exactly, I was gonna say they make a lot of extremely vocal. And they have access to important general American progressive platforms. If you look at the polls again, most American Jews, to one extent or another, do care about Israel. And the question here really is, 
do we take citizenship in the Jewish people seriously? And do we take Israel's promise to be the homeland of, of the world's Jews seriously? And I don't know about giving American Jews a formal voice. I, I, I haven't thought about that. I guess I just don't really take that too seriously. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But I certainly want to hear American Jews who care about Israel have a voice, a literal voice. I want to hear them. And, and we are involved. Look, to my mind, each community, each of these two central Jewish communities, these two major Jewish population centers, uh, each is facing a very distinct challenge. The American Jewish challenge is, can you remain Jewish in the absence of government-sponsored anti-Semitism in an open society that still more or less accepts you? And the challenge- Without being Haredi. Yeah. Yeah, without self ghettoization being in the in the in, modern in, yes, community, right? As and a Jew, and that is that is in some ways the major Jewish question of modernity. Now, on our side, our major question is: Can we continue to be a Jewish state living under relentless threat, periodic war, constant terrorism, a mobilized society, and manage to retain our basic morality, our basic decency. The greatness, to my mind, of the state of Israel all these years has been that we, not that we always make the right moral decisions, but that it's an issue. It's an ongoing issue in the army. It's a constant issue in the army. And will we be able to, to, to maintain that? Or are we, are we going to get lazy and just say, well, you know, when you're under siege, when you're dealing with the Middle East, you know, eye for an eye, be as ruthless as they are, be more ruthless than they are, which of course is what we're seeing with the rise of Kahanism now in Israel. And that's, uh, that is an expression of moral laziness. And so what I see in terms of our relationship is we can help them strengthen their Jewishness. They can help us as a minority, as a Jewish minority, be sensitive, for example, to the place of the Arab minority in Israeli society. What could we do that we're not doing? Uh, do you really think an Israeli, not you and I, who are immigrants, an Israeli who's not interested in the American Jewish community is going to take advice from an American Jew on how to behave towards Arabs? No, but I'm talking about a relationship on the part of the American Jewish leadership with the Israeli leadership. It's, it's always on that level. Who's it's not on the level of, of Machne Yehuda and you know, and, 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 and an American, uh, doctor and, you know, it's, it's, it's on the level of leadership. Uh, on, on the right, they're not interested in having that conversation. In the center, which, as you know, is where I sit. Yeah. Ilapid is very interested in that conversation and has it. He's, who's Amin, as we say, he's open to that. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I think, one of the significant contributions of the Israeli center is seeing not only the state of Israel, but expanding that to Jewish peoplehood. And if we're really serious about Jewish peoplehood, there's no way around listening. We don't have to agree. We don't have to follow their advice, but we need to hear them. And to just shut them out and say, well, you didn't make the commitment that I did. You didn't make Aliyah. Now, you and I made that move, but how many Israelis if they were in the place of American Jews, how many Israelis would pack up and leave? 
Oh, I know that answer because people said to me all the time, are oh. you crazy? You oh. left Miami to move here? Absolutely. I'd people, give my mother to move to Miami. People used to say to me when I first came, it wasn't good for you there? Or they thought like, I must be in some way, like literally, there must be something wrong with me. Because what normal person would exchange America for the Middle East? And we are, we well, you are, have that. We are in the Middle East. You have East. Israelis moving to Portugal. You have a million, at least a million Israelis living in America. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to play that card. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that there are some of us who made Aliyah. It's really important for the integrity of Zionism that there are some American Jews who left hmm. and came here. And stayed. Right. But I'm not going to, to waive that to, to American Jews. It's not fair. Uh, you mentioned two things. Citizenship in the Jewish people. Yeah. And Jewish peoplehood. What do you mean by that? I'm not sure. <laughs> no, really, really. Because citizenship, I, there's the state of Israel. And to be a Jew, you're either converting or you're born to a Jew. Without saying the halakhic reasons. By citizenship in the Jewish people, I mean that, that if you identify with the Jewish people. And let's not get into right. definitions I know, at this point. Before. I mean, look, you know, my, um, and if you want to talk briefly, we, we can I talk I remember about asking you in the first episode, which was like four years ago or something, I actually remember yeah. now, I said to you, who is a Jew? And you basically said, anyone who identifies as a Jew, as far as I'm concerned, after the Holocaust, if you want to be a Jew, you're a Jew. Yeah, but there, the obvious, yes, but I need to just qualify that by saying there obviously needs to be, if you're not, actually Jewish, you need to you some need to conversion convert. process. Yes, there needs to be some conversion process. Now, my relationship with the patrilineal issue, which is, I think, a very important part of the conversation between Israelis and American Jews, is that uh, in principle, my definition of Jewishness is flexible. I want to be as expansive as possible. I'm very concerned about the fact that we're heading toward a historic schism. And if we can't have the most basic agreement about who is a Jew, how do we maintain a shared sense of people? So that really worries me. And part of me wishes that the reform movement had at least tried to have some consultation with, with the Orthodox, but of course we know how that would have worked. So, so apparently they did try. Really? When I spoke with Eric Yoffe, he said that they were, there was some deal going on with the Rabbanut that a reform conversion would be in front of a Beit Din, that they would go to a mikveh. It would be like the minimal standard for an Orthodox conversion, but they couldn't agree. But he was trying to make something happen. All right, so, so then I, I... Yeah, I give him a lot of credit. We had a really interesting conversation. Okay, Yossi, so I'm going to change the topic now. Shabbos guest once asked me, are you Israeli or American? And I said, well, I don't know, what's the difference? He said, I need to know. And the way he defined it, he said, let's say you're in Europe and there's a, a disaster or a war, and you need to flee to an embassy. Do you go to the American embassy or to the Israeli embassy? So which embassy do you go to, Yossi? The Israeli, of course. When I travel to Europe, I travel on my Israeli passport, which is also visa-free. And I love traveling on my Israeli passport. It's a quiet pleasure that I have. And it doesn't matter to anybody else in the world, but it matters to me that I have an Israeli passport in my bag. So my answer to that is... Uh, of course I'm Israeli, but I'm also an American Jew, which is something I would not have said in the years immediately following my Aliyah. I was in American denial. I left, I closed the door behind me, it's over. And as it turns out, 
my career became uh, focused on explaining Israel to, to, to American audiences, American Jewish audiences in practice. And that's not quite what I imagined would happen when I came. But I, I really ended up being intimately involved with the American Jewish community. And so... Yeah, it's funny. I ran into you on a train once on the light rail. Uh-huh. It was funny because I was standing there at the station and I was saying, I wonder if I run into Yossi. And then again, the train, and it was literally the door that you were standing at. I love when that happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to you, isn't it amazing that if this train was in, let's say, New York, people would know you, but here in Israel, nobody knows you. It depends what stop. <laughs> there, are, there are just a couple of stops where, where some people might know me. But uh, Also, Hillel Halkin, yeah. his career became... Totally, totally. He, his career seems to be bashing American Jews. Yeah, yeah. I, I love American Jewry. I love their generosity. I love their religious experimentation, their, their, the way they brought feminism into Judaism. I love the large number of converts that have come in. I love the joy that American Jews feel. You know, I, I um, had a close friend died many years ago. It was a well-known American Jewish journalist, writer, Paul Cowan. Wrote for the Village Voice. He was my mentor, my journalist mentor. He brought me into the Voice. It was really my first big gig. And uh, Paul grew up without any sense of, of being Jewish. He, he, he was the heir to the uh, Sears Roebuck. I don't know if that even still exists. Catalog dynasty. Okay. And he discovered, he discovered uh, Judaism when he was writing a story about this rabbi on the Lower East Side. And this rabbi became his, his teacher and his entry back into Judaism. And Paul said, uh, what, said once to me, he said, you know, I want to make J- Judaism fun for American Jews. And at this point, I was already living in Israel, and I was back for a visit. I said, fun? I said, you know, in Israel, Judaism can be profound. It can be maddening. It can be um, beautiful, meaningful, stifling. But I don't think Israeli Jews think of Judaism as fun. And he said, yeah, like a latka bake and this kind of thing. And, and afterwards, I thought, well, why not? <laughs> Why not? And and it was so disorienting for me, and especially, you know, with my background. I never in my entire life thought of Judaism for a moment as fun. And I still don't. But La Briut, you know, if if American Jews want to connect and see Judaism as a, you know, joyful experience, there's what I see among American Jews who take their Judaism seriously, and I'm speaking now about non-Orthodox Jews is a sense of joy. And they're just so grateful to be able to be expressing their, their Jewishness in a, in a framework that's meaningful for them. And I, I revere that. And you don't think Israelis feel, the, at least religious Israelis feel, feel the same joy? way? Absolutely. You know, I think Israeli, religious Israeli Jews feel the intensity. Intense joy. The intensity of the commitment. Meaningful. It's meaningful. And powerful. I don't know if, if joy comes into it quite. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. I, it's, it's an interesting question, Barack. Okay. Coming back to American Jews. So this is actually a question from Daniel Gordis that he asked in one of his books, I think. 
How did the richest, safest, most secure, educated, and influential Jewish diasporic community in Jewish history raise the most illiterate generation of Jews we've ever produced? Great question. I, I don't know if it's the most illiterate. Uh, I don't know what the Chinese Jewish community, which disappeared, was like. So I don't know. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, yes. I mean, if, if we're making the point of major Jewish community, yes, then, then, then I think it's a fair critique. American Jewry is a very interesting phenomenon because American Jews are largely descended from prostayid. Do you know that expression? A prostayid, a simple Jew. A prostayid. A prostayid is a simple Jew, a plain Jew. The Jews who stayed in Europe, tended to be the more learned. They were afraid of America. It's the butchers and, you know, the woodcutters who came to America. That's interesting. People looking for opportunities. Yeah, they were, you know, and what happened in the Lower East Side, you know? How many husbands left their wives? Murder incorporated. You know, let's not romanticize the, the, the immigrant generation. They were not a pious, you know, God-fearing generation. That's interesting. And so, so the prostayidin produced poor prostayidin produced rich prostayidin. <laughs> I think that's what's happened there. Mm -hmm. Now, what one can also say about American Jewry in the same breath is that I don't know of another Jewish community that invests more funding, effort in leadership training program. Everyone in American Jewry is a leader, <laughs> you know? And, and, and they're investing tremendously in trying to raise educated leaders. Think of the Wexner program, the Heritage program, and on and on. There are and so also this place. Melted, this is Hartman, Hartman goes without Jews. saying. Absolutely. And more and more of, of Hartman's work is in America. And there's a hunger for it. So it's a very complicated picture. And I don't know how this is going to play out. It could end in a colossal Jewish tragedy. You know, less than a century after the Shoah, we could be losing, God forbid, millions of Jews could just disappear. On the other hand, we could really see tremendous surprises happening. A you mean a revival? A flowering, absolutely. Where do you think that's going to come from? From the most creative parts of the liberal Jewish community. Not from Chabad? I think Chabad is going to help, is helping enormously. But, you know, I'll give you an example. I have a friend of mine who um, passed through Eishat Torah. He was one of these American backpackers who was picked up at, at the wall, and he was just blown away by Torah. He never had exposure, and he decided to become a reform rabbi. Through Asia Torah. Through Asia Torah. I love because that. he said, look, it's, I can't go this route. I can't become Haredi or even modern Orthodox. It's not for me. But he became a really from reform rabbi. And I was really surprised. And he said, oh, I'm not the only one. So there's a whole phenomenon out there that we don't know about of uh, reform rabbis, liberal conservative rabbis, who got their first push from Chabad, from Chabad House. And it went in a direction that they didn't expect. But how, how wonderful is that? Because the Jewish people, American Jewry, desperately needs, you know, what I, I call them the border police. They're the Magav. The liberal denominations are patrolling the borders. They're, they're out there. The rabbis are out there. There are scouts and looking at those, at, at the, 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 the borderlands and trying to figure out how do we keep Jews from 
totally crossing over and remaining engaged with the Jewish story. And so, what I want to see Israel and Israeli Jews, what I, what I want to see us do for American Jewry is, is empower them, saying, okay, we understand that America is different. We understand that your conditions are different. How can we help you? Instead of undermining them, eulogizing them, let's stop eulogizing them. Now, the problem is mutual here because more and more American Jews are eulogizing us. Mm. The Jewish democratic state is over. The state of Israel can't survive this way. The occupation. Mm-hmm. Let's stop eulogizing each other. And let's, let's figure out, first of all, let's respect the very different circumstances that each, each of us is struggling with, the conditions that each of us is dealing with. We're dealing with too much hostility. They're dealing with not enough hostility. <laughs> and let's respect each other's struggles, each other's efforts, at least, and then figure out, okay, how can we support you? How can we help you? How can we help you, Israel, be more faithful to the democratic promise of the Declaration of Independence? We can help you there. And how can you, Israel, help us be more Jewish? That's a great trade-off. I have, one, I have the last question. Go ahead. I wanted to follow up with what you just said, but we don't have time. What are we experiencing here in Israel that American Jews are missing out on? American Jews staying in America, living their lives, not knowing what they're missing out on. What are they missing out on? Are they missing out on anything? The total harmony between the official national culture and rhythm and Jewish time. We live in Jewish time effortlessly, and we take it for granted. But I see American Jews, young Jews who come here, rabbinical students from the liberal institutions, liberal seminaries, who are blown away by the experience of Jewish time in Jerusalem. And there's such a reinforcing power there that American Jews need us. They need that. I need to write that down. What they're also missing is how our public debates are so Jewish. They're about Jewish values. They're about, they use Jewish language, and they draw on on Jewish tradition. I'll give you an example. One of my favorite ads was um, a bus ad that uh, the Masorati movement, the conservative movement here, conservative Judaism, ran against wholesale exemption of Haredi society from the workforce. And it was a quote from the Rambam, from Maimonides, uh, about how one should not make one's living off of learning Torah. And I don't think anyone who saw that ad felt that this was strange to be conducting a social and economic debate in the 21st century based on what a, what a medieval Jewish philosopher had to say. And the ease in which Israelis move in and out of time zones, uh, of Jewish time. This, Israel is not only an engathering of Jewish communities, it's an engathering of Jewish eras. Hmm. And we're arguing here between over the primacy of one era over another. And it's maddening and, and draining and exhilarating all at the same time. What I think American Jews are missing most out of living here is Hebrew. One of my greatest pleasures is speaking Hebrew with my kids. You didn't speak English with your kids? They wouldn't let me. Well, that's interesting. And, and so, but it's interesting though, because there are certain topics that we spoke about in English, 
And there were certain topics that were Hebrew. School was Hebrew. Their friends was Hebrew. Anything to do with the home, with our American family, that was English. So we'd go in and out of these two languages. And, you know, I, I, I called it our private Yiddish, you know, combining Hebrew with, with a, the vernacular. And, and that great joy of listening to Israeli music with my kids. That's, that for me is one of the seminal experiences of being a 21st century Jew. And I'm sad that American Jews don't have that. I've tried to bring Israeli music to American Jews with very limited success because of the Hebrew. Of course. So, so I think that there is an infusion of, of experiences that a transfusion between us that we need. We need their expansiveness, their sense of owning Judaism rather than being owned by it that freedom to experiment, to create. And we need, we can give them something of the depth of the Israeli experience, the seriousness of, of being a Jew here. And that's, that's a good trade-off. That's my vision of, of a healthy American-Jewish-Israeli relationship. Okay, Yossi, thank you very much. Always great to talk to you, <laughs> That was Yossi Klein-Alevi, a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute and New York Times best-selling author. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I always look forward to my conversations with Yossi. He always has something new and interesting for me to learn. And thankfully, Yossi agreed to several more conversations in the future. We're going to discuss the Holocaust and Jewish identity, Haredim and the State of Israel, and lastly, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Please make sure if you didn't listen to previous episodes, you can find them all on my website, jewishpeopleideas.com. And if you don't yet know about my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project, you're in for a real treat. There are over 200 episodes already. Every week, a new Hasidic story or two with tens of thousands of listeners around the world. If you haven't listened yet, do a search for Hasidic Story Podcast or Hasidic Story Project and you'll find the episodes there. Thank you so much for listening, my sweetest friends. You're welcome to send me a message on Facebook, YouTube, or wherever you can find me. I'd be very happy to hear from you. And until the next episode, Zai Gesund.